0: This is Millennially Speaking, my personal soapbox about politics, pop culture, and everything in between. I'm David Latimer. This week, we're talking about a decision on a police shooting, two controversial and unlikely friends, and how the media covers misinformation. But first, what I'd like to talk about is this police shooting that people have been talking about. The decision was made and this is about the Amber Geiger case. So Amber Geiger is a, or was a Dallas police officer who shot a unarmed and completely unprovoked uh, black man in his own apartment. Uh, His name was Botham Jean and she shot him believing that he was an intruder in her own apartment. So I'm not really clear or understanding how this all went down but basically the story is is that she was working a shift as a police officer and she'd been working something like 16 hours something really really ridiculous and when she got to her apartment complex she parked on the wrong floor so already she's tired and confused so she's parking on the wrong floor she parked on the fourth floor I believe and she lives on the third floor then she walked into the building And went to what she thought was her apartment now the she says the door was open it was cracked open so right off the bat I'm already thinking even if you're tired even if you are completely out of it how do you not notice that if you're coming up to your apartment and your door is cracked how does that not raise any alarm bells of why is my door open now obviously she thinks that it's because she has an intruder. So she goes into what she thinks is her apartment and she sees this man just sitting there watching TV. Now the whole case confuses me because the visual cues to something that is your apartment would be like the furniture, the layout of the room. None of that was different. So, so apparently this, because the, the floors are similar, This apartment for Botham, his apartment, is directly above hers. So the the layout of the floor where she thought her apartment was, that would kind of make sense. She would walk directly to the place that she thought was hers, and she went in now thinking that there was an intruder in there. She walks in, she sees him, and supposedly, based on testimony, she gave no verbal warning she gave no warning shot she gave no basically no call out to who she thought was an intruder and just shot him just all of the all of the case was to me very suspicious and surprising now not that's not to say that i think amber geiger went into this apartment thinking and knowing that it wasn't hers and she intended to go and shoot an unarmed black man that's not not what i mean but how she could just misinterpret all of that. Now, granted, I'm sure all of this happened really quickly. I'm sure this was all, you know, within, you know, a minute or less that this all went down, but I'm just so confused how she could have gotten so confused. How was she so lost in her own apartment building? And uh, the the trial happened and the, the jury came to a verdict relatively quickly and, They found her guilty of murder. Uh, She I think she would have wanted something like involuntary manslaughter or something that would have brought a lower sentence. But the sentencing guidelines for her were a minimum of five years and a maximum of ninety nine years in prison. And the prospects of that were obviously terrible. Now, one of the things that I don't like is that in the media, when this was covered, that she was found guilty and they were looking at a sentence. Really, the thing that the media was focusing on was that 99-year number. No one is going to get the 99 years maximum. That's not how sentencing generally works. You know, the mandatory minimums are something that we, you know, we need reform on in terms of, you know, drug sentences and things like that in terms of minimums, but maximum sentences are a completely separate issue that, you know, most people will never see the those maximum sentences like that unless it's a particularly heinous crime. So... The fixating on that 99 number, I think, was really, from the outset, it made the actual sentence seem really light, which ended up being 10 years, and I have some mixed feelings on that. Obviously, I think she she deserves some form of of punishment, and 10 years is definitely a really good punishment. Um, Most likely, I would assume she's going to end up getting out early on good behavior, because she is a police officer, or she was a police officer, so... I don't see her committing any kind of, you know, terrible things in prison or doing anything in prison that would prevent her from getting out early. But, you know, should she have stayed even longer, potentially? I I don't know. I, you know, it was, I think, in the end, accidental murder. She obviously murdered this man who had no reason to be murdered. He was just sitting in his own home. And, of course, this brings up more issues of the Black Lives Matter movement of, you know, Black people can just be shot anywhere, including just sitting in their own home, doing absolutely nothing wrong, but, you know, sitting in their own place. And the the assumption that they're, you know, doing something wrong, was that an implicit bias on Amber Geiger's part? Was she, you know, not to assume things about her, but if it had been a white person, would she have fired off the shot as quickly? Is her police training, just did that maybe... Um, give her more leeway to do these kinds of things, or did it give her more quick reaction? Uh, I don't know. The definitely during the trial there were talks about the police department and why was she working so long? Why was she working that big long shift? And and how could she have gotten so tired from her job that you know coming home like that would confuse her so much? So obviously there's that as the as the worry. Plus there was also At the end, when she was sentenced and when the verdict came out and all of that, you know, uh, I believe it was Botham's brother actually approached her and gave her a hug and said, like, I I wish, you no ill will. I forgive you. And that also led into another discussion of do African-Americans and do do they feel like they have to apologize and give more forgiveness and grace when this kind of situation happens. And obviously I can't I can't speak to that. I can't speak to the the outcomes of this and whether that should have happened or not. You want to take things on a case by case basis obviously. You know, some people would feel like no, she she murdered him for no reason and I don't forgive her, but others that's a a, a forgiveness, that's grace and that's his decision. I don't think it's right to paint everybody with the same broad stroke and say that You know, if because he's black, he shouldn't have forgiven this officer or because he you know, there's so much attention on this case that he should be speaking for the black community rather than as a person and and personally. And I don't think that's right. You know, if he felt that forgiveness was the right thing to do, that's on him. And I think it's a it's a very powerful thing, what happened, but also a very controversial thing, clearly. So it's a tough situation. It was a very, very tough case. And Obviously I feel for their family and I feel for Amber Geiger obviously because I'm sure she did not mean to commit this crime. She this was not a premeditated murder. She was not trying to kill somebody who was just sitting in their own home. So and to end a career like this of you know just being tired and and you end up murdering someone, you know, without any intentions of it and it's just a terrible thing but you know, in the end, we'll see, we'll see what this does in terms of reform, maybe in the Dallas police department or just in how we, we think about these kinds of things. We'll be right back. Hey, did you know that millennially speaking is actually on Instagram? Check us out at millennially underscore speaking. We have all kinds of updates on their videos and photos and previews for episodes and all kinds of stuff. So check us out. We're back, and what I'd like to talk about next is something more pop culture, but also a little politics. Um, This was something that happened last week, and it was at a, I believe it was a Panthers and Cowboys game, if I'm not mistaken. Um, There were two people who were in the crowd who were some pretty unlikely friends, and it was Ellen DeGeneres and President George W. Bush. And the when they cut over to them, you could see they were sort of talking back and forth and they were sharing a laugh or or whatever. And there's been some controversy over that. So some people were talking to Ellen. People tweeted at Ellen saying that, you know, he is not an ally to your community as a as a gay woman, that he had lots of policies that were anti LGBT and How could you be kind to a person like that? And how could you be a friend or even sit with him that basically she's she's not representing her own community very well by doing that. And she actually came out on her talk show and and discussed it and said, you know, her her whole thing on her show that a lot of people really admire about her is that she's very kind. Um, The way she ends her show every day is be kind to one another and. And that's one of her things that I think sets her apart from a lot of people is that she really does promote this kindness thing to all. And that's what she basically said. She said, when I say that, I mean everyone, you know, be kind to everyone. And she says, while we may disagree on things, she misses a time when we could legitimately disagree on things, fundamental things, really, and be civil and kind to each other. And I think definitely that's something that we've lost I can understand from certain people's perspective why she shouldn't obviously the 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 gay rights things is definitely one of the things that like somebody like Ellen may not support and may not you know want to be friends with him because of that. I don't know if his views have evolved at all, really because we haven't really spoken. there haven't really been like an interview with with George W. Bush since he left. um he's talked a few times, but no real in-depth, like, what do you feel about, you know, this kind of policy or whatever. So we haven't really talked about that. And obviously there's other things that George W. Bush did during his presidency that I could see people not really supporting. You know, there's the NSA collection of data. There's things like waterboarding and other... uh, People have called him a war criminal because of sort of the things that we've done that have broken Geneva Convention and things that are seen as not okay and bombing terrorist families and things like that. Things that Trump has suggested, but as far as we know, has not done, but you know, those are, those are crimes and and things that we've done or that he did during his administration that, yeah, they're illegal or maybe we don't approve of them anymore. And yeah, I could see why people don't like that. However, I feel like we've gotten to this place and, and it's part of my thesis that eventually when, um, We look on this years in advance or or years in the future as to why Trump became president. I think part of it was this sort of political incivility that I think liberals need to understand that the reason we got to where we are now is because political incivility happened on the other side. So I believe Trump came from a place of the Tea Party, if anybody remembers when the Tea Party started. And. This idea that sort of middle America and and conservatives felt very underrepresented and they felt like Democrat elites and liberals were crapping on them, basically, that they were treating them like they were irrelevant and didn't matter and their opinions didn't matter. You know, things that Democrats said, like calling them flyover country and uh, that they were uneducated or that they were hillbillies or rednecks or whatever it was. Things that basically just delegitimize them, basically just not just as voters, but like as people. And I think people felt really, um, you know, disempowered and felt like, really, why, you know, you know why would I want to support a, a party that thinks of, you know, so little of me? Uh, and I think that's why the Tea Party sort of emerged and became this thing that, you know, the end result was... Trump, whether, you know, the Tea Party wasn't mentioned at that point, the the sort of phrase Tea Party has sort of died out, but I think that was the natural end point, was a president that represented those people. And I think he really did represent those people, the sort of frustrations that people had. Now, I do think the pendulum has swung a little bit too far that direction, because I think you also now have people who feel a little bit too empowered to say things, and they end up saying some terrible things to people, like those kind of people would maybe say something under their breath back in the day, are now saying terrible things just to people in public, you know, about, you know, why is somebody speaking a different language in public and just saying it to their face? Like the pendulum obviously has swung a little bit too far, but that was a political incivility thing that when Democrats say something and and so brazen that that created this unstable party and it made it so people wanted to speak up and be loud. So now you've got this people being loud on one side, and now they're being loud shouting over top of you. So, why have we gotten to this point where we're, you know, saying bad things about Ellen for just being kind and being civil to each other? You don't have to agree with the things that Bush did or does or anything, but the fact that we can't just sit down and be civil with each other and even share a laugh is kind of crazy to me, and I understand. You don't have to, you know, support somebody. I mean, Ellen has even said, and she's stuck to her principles, she said she won't invite Trump on her show ever. And that's fine. It's her show. She doesn't have to invite anybody on her show if she doesn't want to. Um, but she's never said something mean or untrue or nasty about him, especially not in a nasty way. She's never done that because she's sticking to her principles, which is to be kind. You know, you she, we know she's a liberal Democrat. We know that she is on that side. But she has... ...proven time and time again that she does not want to be that toxic energy in the room. Because there's plenty of other people who can be mean and nasty about Trump or Obama, or whoever we're talking about. You're going to have those people who say mean and nasty things, and Ellen doesn't want to participate in that. And that's really admirable to me. I think it's really good to see people who want to stick to that and just being nice to each other. And I think that's something we need more of. Again, you know, you want to debate politics, that's fine. But that's not her arena. And it's not really Bush's arena either. He doesn't really discuss the politics stuff anymore. So just to say that we have to be mean to each other just because of disagreements or even perceived things, you know, from the past is to me just more harmful than it is beneficial. We'll be right back. Did you know that Millennially Speaking is also on Twitter? You can find us at underscore MS podcast. You'll see some other fun things there like my fun and pithy tweets or live tweeting of debates or any other thing coming up that's just off the top of my head and off the cuff. So check us out there. You'll love it. We're back. And the last thing I wanted to talk about is how the media is representing misinformation and not just that, but how media outlets like to point out the shortcomings of certain media organizations pointing out misinformation. So uh, for those who don't know, I am a journalism minor or I graduated with a minor in journalism. So I learned a lot about the basics of journalism and how you're supposed to write stories, how you create your headlines and your leads, and basically just how you formulate things based on certain Journalistic standards. There are certain things that you say and don't say. There are certain ways that you word stories and there are certain ways that you uh, leave things out or, or the way that you're supposed to word them. Um, and that's just based on, you know, uh, standards that have been sort of built in based on past practice. But then there's also things based on sort of a respect level of just how to be respectful to people out there in general. And that's really all political correctness is, I think, is it's just being, you know, polite. And being, you know, just in general, just being nice. But uh, one of the things that bothers me is I see this all the time. In the era of Trump, there are times when he says things that are misleading or that are false or whatever. And, And not to say that Trump's the only person that's done this. There are definitely all presidents say things that are untrue, but there have been more exaggerations and lies from Trump than in the past. So one of the things that I see a lot is I see media organizations or people who cover media organizations calling out other media organizations for how they formulated a headline or how they reported on what Trump has said. And they'll say that, you know, Trump said this thing and this media organization failed to call him out on it. and. It's kind of an unfair thing to say, because most of the time when I see that, it's not that they failed to point out misinformation or falsehoods. It's that they didn't use strong enough language, I think. And what what's the standard there then? What how do you want them to call it out? And what language do you want them to use? You know, there's certain things that you say in journalism, there's certain things that you don't say, and I think it's it's wrong for people who don't understand journalism or have never been a writer to sort of, you know, try to make their own standards there, because one of the other things that I've noticed a lot is you'll get when there's these really big high profile cases of, you know, like a Harvey Weinstein, where they allegedly rape somebody or somebody comes forward with an accusation of rape and The news organizations, the news outlets say that it was allegedly raped or an accuser comes forward or using language like that. And you get people who criticize the media organizations and say, you know, when they use that language, it's the media not believing victims. And it's using that term. It it means that we don't believe women and we don't think that they're what they're saying is credible. And that's not true. That's using the correct legal language. You know the the standards with journalism is that you know it's still innocent and proven, until proven guilty. That's a, a a legal standard, but that also comes to journalism is you can't putting in language that would say that Weinstein did this certain thing just without saying that he was actually you know convicted of a certain thing. That's to say that you're putting your own bias in there in saying. News organizations are not the ones that are supposed to be believing women. It's people. It's the jury. It's not about what the news organization thinks. I don't want my news organization to have an opinion, really. That's what op-eds and editorials are for. You know, having opinion is not for the reporters. The reporters are the ones who are supposed to just come forward with all the facts. So when news organizations say allegedly or accuser or things like that, that's just using correct legal language and correct journalistic language. So going back to Trump, you know, Media Matters is one of them. Media Matters is a they're perceived as more liberal, but I would say and they are. They're they're definitely more left leaning because they definitely call out outlets like Fox News and and things like that a lot more. Um but they're just they're pointing out misinformation and people in the news who are not reporting facts correctly. And I see a lot from them where they say that, you know, the New York Times or that Fox News or whatever are not reporting things or or not calling out Trump's lies strongly enough or they didn't call him out, period. And they should know better because they're ones that cover the media. They're ones that understand or should at least understand how journalism is supposed to work. So you would think, you know, maybe they're I think they're being a little bit too strong or they're being maybe a little bit too, I think they're being unfair. I think they're being a little bit too forceful in terms of what the standard is or or what exactly they're supposed to be saying. If you want to be a media organization and you want to call somebody out and say that they are, you know, this is a victim of Harvey Weinstein rather than uh, a Weinstein accuser, That's on you, but that's not going to change the fact that it's an accusation made that needs to be settled in a court of law. Not, you know, whether you believe them or not, that's on a personal level, not on a legal level. It's not about whether the news organization believes you, and it shouldn't be about that. And the same goes for Trump and anything that Trump ever says. If you want to believe what he says or if you want to, you know, refute the things that he says, that's for fact checkers to do. And they're doing that. They are doing that. If something is misleading or something is said, there are plenty of news organizations that are calling it out. And and of course, there are cases when media could do better. You know, maybe not doing live press conferences, maybe coming back to them later when they're done. That's something that can be done if you want to prevent misinformation. But just saying that they're not doing a good job just because, you know, something gets out there. Misinformation is everywhere. And News organizations are just trying their best. So I think people that don't understand the way that journalism is supposed to work shouldn't judge the language that is used in the media. It's just not fair. And that's all for this edition of Millennially Speaking. I'm David Latimer. Be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, share us with your friends. Thanks for listening.